I heard a story about a father who had two daughters, and each night before bed, he would read them a story. Well, as the girls got older, a little bit older, they were still quite young, but one of them was a little bit older than the other, and she was getting into school age, and so she's starting to get to that point where she's realizing and understanding the difference between real and make-believe. And so one night, the dad was reading them both a story, and the older daughter just blurts out right in the middle of the story, she says, that's not possible. And the younger daughter snapped right back just as strongly as her big sister and said, hey, you're not the boss of possible. <laughs> I like that thinking. Well, we are in the midst of a series in the second week of our series that we are calling That Is Who You Are. And last week, I kind of led things off by giving you a quote from a guy named A.W. Tozer. And he said this. He said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because what we think about God is what shapes everything else about us. And so in this series, we're just taking some time to talk about Think about God, who he truly is. You know, I can remember as a child, my parents, my grandparents, uh, Bible school teachers, reading stories and teaching stories out of the Bible and, and reading these stories and accounts of the miraculous and the supernatural. And my worldview had no problem accepting those stories as real and true. And... My worldview still has no problem accepting those stories as real and true. I, I read these stories and I believe them just as much as I did. I maybe know a little bit more of the details of the story, but I still have no problem believing in these miraculous stories, these miraculous accounts that God gives us in his word. Now, I also recognize that some uh, would think that my worldview is a bit childish and unenlightened. Some in our world, maybe even some of you sitting here, have a, a hard time wrapping your mind around it because the waters that we swim in today, the cultural waters that we swim in, tell us that the universe is mechanistic. That if it can't be explained and understood by natural laws, then it must not be real and it must not be true. And that might be a struggle for some of us, maybe because you've been taught that you can't believe in the God of the Bible, you can't believe what this says, and also believe in science at the same time. How do you make sense of those two? They, they are at odds with each other. Now, I don't have time to go into deep into all of this. It's probably a series, you know, sermon series in and of itself. But let me just say that it is a false dichotomy to think that science is about evidence and faith is about irrationality and believing with a blind faith, so to speak, as it's sometimes characterized by. And by the way, there's actually a pretty large number of believing scientists, God-believing scientists. Now, there are ranging levels of, of what that entails, but there are plenty of scientists in our world today that believe in God and believe in the Bible. But more to the point, to reject Faith, or to walk away from faith in God or faith in the Bible because of this concept of accepting natural law and, and kind of that's, that's the end goal. To be honest, I, I would contend that, that that person, maybe some of you this morning, maybe not, but maybe some of your friends, I'm guessing, or those that you know, maybe even some listening online, to, to reject faith or to walk away from faith, I, I would contend that if that's your mindset, 
you're walking away from that because of this acceptance of natural law, that you really haven't rejected faith or left faith. Really what you've done is just shifted faith. Because everyone has a faith system. Every one of us has a faith system, no matter what we believe in or how the extent of which we believe it. Everyone makes assumptions about reality that cannot be seen or proven through the scientific method. And listen, I'm not bashing science. I love science. Science has done a lot for our world. You just think about the advancements in science that have been made over the last year, two years, 10 years, 50 years. There are so many advancements in science that we have seen as a result of what people in the scientific field have done. But what science cannot do is create something out of nothing. And we all agree, hopefully, that something is here, right? More than a few somethings are here. And so here's the deal. The matter of how matter got here is a matter of faith. You have to make a faith conjecture about how things got here. Now, I happen to believe that the evidence shows, and science, by the way, backs this up, that the order of our universe is incredibly dynamic. It is, it is such an ordered cosmos. There is such a, um, such a, a, a precise order to the world and the universe that we live in. There is such intelligent design in the universe that it almost gives you the impression that someone intended for it to be that way. And so you've got to come up with an explanation. How did nothing produce something that is so designed for life? My explanation is the first five words of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created. That is my assumption. That is my explanation. And I didn't have to turn off my brain to come to that conclusion. I used my brain to look at what this universe is pointing to. So, that being said, if God exists, then it's not unreasonable for me to say that impossibility does not. That science can describe how the universe operates, but it does not dictate how it operates. And so, please understand, my worldview believes in natural law. If I walk off this stage, or if I walk off a cliff, I'm going to drop, right? Maybe some of you would like to see that, you know, in, in action just to make sure that, you know, that, that really is the case. I, I believe in natural law, but my worldview also has room for a God who is not restricted by the natural laws that he created in the first place. The two can go hand in hand. God can do anything consistent with who he is and what he wants done. The creator can intervene in his creation any way he chooses, and he can do so easily. The I am that is revealed in Scripture can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, with and for whoever he wants, if he wants. Just ask a man by the name of Elijah. Each week in the series, we're going to be walking through a story in the Old Testament. In this case, we're going to be walking through several stories in the Old Testament. And today we're going to be focusing in on the stories that we find in 1 Kings Chapter 17 and chapter 18. You can go ahead and turn there and be flipping through. I'm not going to go through every detail of each and every story. I would encourage you to go back and read the, the couple chapters. It won't take you that long. You can read it this afternoon. Really incredible stories that are contained in these two chapters. And in these two chapters, just to give you kind of an overview, and we'll go a little bit of a step-by-step -step through them. 
But you just have one story of the supernatural after another story of the supernatural. It starts with Elijah going to King Ahab, who was the king at the time. Says to King Ahab, it's not going to rain until God says it's going to rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then God sent Elijah out to this brook that's out in the middle of the nowhere. And while he's at the brook, he is fed by, of all things, ravens every morning and every night. God then sends him to another country where there's a widow who's about to starve to death. All she's got is a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour in a jar for her and her son. Elijah says, give me something to eat. She says, I got nothing for you. And so Elijah says, just trust me and you'll never run out of flour and oil. And he stayed there for a long time and they had miracle food every day to eat. Later, tragedy strikes and the little boy, this mother's little boy, uh, dies. And Elijah says, bring the boy to me. Give me the boy. Now realize to this point. No one in the Bible has ever risen from the dead. But Elijah prays to God to give that little boy his life back, and it happened. Then you read about another occasion where Elijah has this contest on a place called Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and he calls down fire from heaven to show who the one true God is. Then Elijah goes back to Ahab, and he says, hey, remember that promise that God made that it's not going to rain for three and a half years. Well, God says, now it's going to rain, and then suddenly the heavens open up and it begins to rain. And it's just one story, one story after another. And every one of them is presented as very, very normal. Normal. Because to the authors of the Bible, faith is not illogical. Faith is theological. Faith introduces God into the equation. And so as the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. If God is the creator, then there's nothing in creation he cannot do if he wants. And so despite the efforts that many and our culture have made, God has remained stunningly quite shrink-proof. I am still it. Now, let me clarify a couple of things before we get into this a little bit more. I do want to be careful with that word miracle. It gets thrown around a lot about a lot of different things. And to be clear, I'm not talking about some of the miraculous gifts that were present in New Testament times that were given Obviously, Jesus had, and then even the apostles had. I'm not talking about those things. I don't believe those are present today. Um, I believe they were given to the apostles, and certainly Jesus had them because he is God, uh, for a certain period of time and for a very certain purpose. But I do believe that the capacity of our God to still perform outside of the natural, outside of what seems possible, does still exist today. And his reasons for working outside of what seems possible are just as valid today as they were when the scriptures were recorded. Let me give you three this morning. First, God does the impossible to extend his mercy. God does the impossible to extend his mercy. You know, we teach our kids to pray varying prayers. But one of the things that oftentimes we teach our kids to pray is God is good and God is great. God is good and God is great. And because God is good, he intervenes into his creation to do things that we weren't expecting. It was the kindness of God that made sure his prophet had supernatural food every day. It was the compassion of God that moved him to return to the life uh, uh, to the son of a pagan widow. 
That was the compassion of God that moved him to do that. And that miracle, by the way, had nothing to do with advancing Israel's future. It just had to do with a good God reaching down and being compassionate and doing something good for a broken-hearted woman. It was the grace of God that sent his reign back to Israel to fall on the just and the unjust. King Ahab was wicked. We'll talk about him in just a minute. But he was wicked. His wife Jezebel was wicked. And yet God still sends rain on his people. You see, we should be grateful that God's great power is exercised through the filter of his great mercy. It is a scary thing to think about a God who can do anything he wants and he's mean. But that's not our God. We never have to worry that our God would exercise his power apart from his goodness and his mercy. And so it shouldn't be all that surprising that when Jesus shows up, we would read about times that his compassion prompted him to do the supernatural. Like, for example, in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 and 41. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said, and moved with compassion. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And you have these stories all over the Gospels. The reason Jesus cared to do miracles is because Jesus cared. And you know what? He still does. God still cares. The God who did miracles out of compassion is still a compassionate God. And so we hear stories of God in his compassion and mercy working in amazing ways. I've got one for you um, that I read not too long ago. Uh, it's a story about a woman by the name of Helen Rosevere, Dr. Helen Rosevere. She was one of the first missionaries to the Congo, and she set up a mission, medical mission there. And so at their medical mission, she had a woman come in. They had a woman come in who had a two-year-old daughter and also was pregnant at the time. And the woman went into premature labor, and she died giving birth to this baby, premature baby. Well, they didn't have an incubator. They're in the Congo. They didn't have those resources that you and I have. And this is back in the 1950s, I believe. And so they didn't have an incubator. All they had was a hot water bottle, which if you know what hot water bottles are. They're just rubber balloons, and you fill them up. And, um, that's how they... That's what they used in situations like this. So they, she said to one of the helpers, go get the hot water bottle. They went to get the hot water bottle. They filled it up, and it burst. Helen Rosevere, Dr. Helen Rosevere said, if we don't get a hot water bottle, this baby is going to die. If we don't get one within 24 hours, this baby is going to die. So they began to pray. And there was a girl in the mission at the time as well who saw this younger or the older girl, the older sister of this premature baby, a couple years old, and she said, and... Pray, let's pray that God will give a doll to her as well, because that way she won't be lonely. That afternoon, a box of supplies just happened to come. By the way, as Helen Rosary is telling this story, she said, I had never gotten a parcel, a box from my homeland, which was England at the time, up to that point. And yet that afternoon, a box shows up. And in the box, they found some clothing items, some bandages, some food items. And of course, amidst all of those things, there was a brand new perfectly working hot water bottle. And the little girl who had prayed for the doll said, well, if God sent the hot water bottle, surely he sent the doll. And she went rummaging around in the box, and what did she find but a doll? Here's the backstory: That box was put in the mail five months earlier by a group of praying women in England. Even when we can't see it, he's working. Even when we can't feel it, he's working. I mean, how does that happen? 
And sure, we can try and explain it away with a lot of different things. But it happens because God is just good. And he does the impossible because he is good, but also because he's great. And so another reason God does the impossible is to expose false gods. And I made sure I put that in little g-o-d-s, just to be clear on that. That's why sometimes in the Bible, miracles are also called signs sometimes, because they're pointing to something God is doing to reveal something about himself. In fact, that's what happened with Elijah in the story I mentioned earlier in 1 Kings chapter 18 involving the prophets of Baal. So here's the whole story. And it's a fascinating story. If you want to read all of it, I'll just give you the Cliff Notes version of it. But this wicked king king named Ahab and his even more wicked wife Jezebel had led the people of Israel into deep idolatry, specifically the worship of these false gods of Baal. And the people were kind of doing this mixture of a little bit of God worship over here and a little bit of Baal worship over here. And so Elijah calls them out and he says, everybody come up here on this mountain and we're going to have a competition. Only the gods are not going to be the judges. The gods are going to be the participants. And so he says to all the prophets of Baal, we're going to build two altars, one for you guys, one for God. And we're going to put a bull on each altar and we're going to call down fire from heaven. And the God who answers by fire is the one true God. Now, if you're a worshiper of Baal, this should not be a problem for you because Baal is thought to be the God of lightning and the God of, um, what else? The God of, uh, of the sun. I had it in my notes and I couldn't remember it. The God of the sun and the God of lightning. So raining down fire should not be a problem, right? Either lightning or the sun or both. Take your pick. Shouldn't be a problem for Baal. So Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, you go first. So they start chanting. They start dancing. This goes on till about midday. And I love Elijah. If you read the story, Elijah, it's like, I feel like this is what I would be doing. He starts trash talking them because nothing's happening. So Elijah just starts trash talking. Is, is, is your God asleep? Maybe your God's busy. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's in the bathroom or something. Give him, give him a few minutes, you know. Is he out of town? And so they start chanting even louder, shouting even louder. They even start cutting themselves and bleeding. This goes on all day, and the people of Israel are watching all of this foolishness. Then about sunset, Elijah says, okay, my turn. Get off the field. He pours water on the altar. And not just a little bit of water, mind you. He has four jars, four large jars of water filled up, poured on the altar. They do this three different times. Then Elijah prays to God, and boom, fire comes down from heaven, consumes not only the sacrifice, but also the wood, the stones, the soil, and every drop of water that was poured on that altar. Amen? I mean, like, how do you not get chills? thinking about this story. It's an incredible story. And Elijah turns to the prophets of Baal and he's like, scoreboard, check it out, you know, game over. And 1 Kings chapter 18 verse 39 says, when all the people saw this, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. God does these things to reveal himself as the true God. And so it shouldn't be surprising that when Jesus shows up, and he claims, I am God in the flesh, that he would do miracles to prove that claim. In fact, in uh, John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, Jesus says, don't believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, at least believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So listen, God still has compassion on people. And God still desires to reveal himself as the true God. Now, 
How he goes about doing that, I get, can, is probably different in some ways than it was that it, during those times with Elijah and some other ways. But the reality is no less true that God still desires to make a way for people to be drawn to him. And the way maker, which we talked about last week, often makes a way to himself by being a miracle worker, by doing the impossible. And being a miracle worker, by the way, helps convince us that he's a promise keeper, which we'll talk about next week. But that leads me to a third point, and it's this. God does the impossible to expand our faith. Every miracle Elijah experienced just increased his boldness to ask for the next one. I mean, how in the world did he have it in his mind to pray for a little boy to come back to life when that had never happened up until that point? Well, maybe if you get fed supernaturally every single day, you start to maybe think in different ways. Maybe that increases your propensity to pray pretty big. When you've experienced God working in that way, you tend to pray a little more boldly. And so in Luke chapter 8, there's a story where Jesus is approached by this man named Jairus who falls at his feet, leader of the synagogue, comes and falls at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house to heal his 12-year-old daughter who is dying, his only daughter. Pleads with Jesus to come and heal her. But on the way there, there's this woman who has this blood bleeding condition, this blood disorder. She's had it for 12 years, and she's thinking to herself, if I can just touch the hem of Jesus' robe, maybe I can be healed. And so she reaches out, and she touches Jesus' cloak, and she's healed. And Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. So while this is happening, a man from Jairus' house comes to tell him the bad news. Your daughter has died. Don't, don't worry about troubling the teacher anymore. So Jesus, hearing this, says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. So Jesus goes to Jairus' house, and everybody outside is mourning the death of this little girl. Jesus walks up, and he says, she's not dead, she's just sleeping. Luke says, they all laughed at him, as probably maybe some of us would as well, because they knew she was dead, is what Luke says. But then Jesus went in, took the young girl by the hand and said, my child, get up, and her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Mark chapter 10, a blind man named Bartimaeus is on the side of the road, and he hears Jesus is coming his way, and so he cries out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus says, what do you want from me? Bartimaeus says, I want to see. I'm blind. I want to see, and Jesus tells him, go. Your faith has healed you, and immediately he received his sight and began following Jesus. This is one of my favorite stories, and probably many of yours as well as in Mark chapter 2, where these four friends of this paralyzed guy trying to get him to Jesus to be healed, there's too crowded in the place where Jesus is teaching, so they take him up on the roof. They tear the roof apart to lower him down to where Jesus is. And it says in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, which is a whole nother discussion in and of itself, pretty cool though. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Verse 11, Jesus said, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. And listen, God knows our struggle. He knows that every day we swim in this cultural current that the universe is completely mechanistic, and there's got to be an explanation for it. He knows that we struggle oftentimes to see beyond what we see with our physical eyes. But here's the good news. Our God responds with mercy to all of us who want our faith expanded. 
And I think one of the best examples of this is in Mark chapter 9. So this man comes to Jesus, very sick son, a lot of, of issues going on with his son. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, what do you mean, if I can? Everything is possible for one who believes. And then here's the part I want you to pay attention to. The boy's father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And our God wants to help us overcome our unbelief. He wants us to develop a faith. He wants to develop a faith in us that will not settle for it is what it is if it's not what God says it could be. Several years ago, they did a piece on uh, 9-11. And one of the things they talked about is when, nine, when the planes crashed into the two towers that the foundations were rocked such that the doors jammed just moved the foundations and moved every floor and and so the doors were jammed and they couldn't get them open and many people were trapped in their offices and they couldn't get out well when rescue personnel came instead of trying to open the doors which they they couldn't they were jammed they simply knocked down the walls instead of going through the doors they knocked down the walls because here's the thing those walls were painted to look like concrete which is why the workers thought they were trapped inside and couldn't get out. They couldn't get out the doors. They thought they were surrounded by concrete. And so they could not or didn't think they could get out. But the rescue workers were able to just bust the doors down when in fact the walls were really nothing more than sheetrock. They're just painted to look like concrete, but they were nothing more than sheetrock. There was a way out. They just didn't know it. They didn't know they didn't have to stay trapped in the captivity of their situation. And here's the deal. God doesn't want us to be held captive either. He doesn't want us to be held captive by just what we think is going to happen in the natural world. He doesn't want us to be held captive by what appears to be impossible. Because with God, all things are possible. Not some, not most, all. Listen to what James says in James chapter 5. Verses 16 through 18. He says, The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being even as we are. I want to just let that sink in. And I'm going to read it in just a second again. Let that sink in for a second. We just read two chapters. Well, I didn't read two chapters. I told you story after story about this same guy. And what does James say? Elijah was a human being just like you. I say, how, how's God going to work? I, I, again, I'm not saying God's going to do all of these things that he did with life. Don't hear me say that, okay? But sometimes we read these and we're like, well, you know, that, that's a Bible care. That's, you know, that's different. Elijah was a human being. I'm not telling you something. I'm reading what Scripture says, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. Let me ask you. Well, let me tell you something. Then let me ask you. We've been talking about the most important thing about you is what you think about God. So let me ask you, how big is your God? How big is your God? Because with God, it is impossible to ask too big. It is impossible to ask too big. Now, 
let me clarify that. I feel like I have to clarify some things because you start thinking different ways. That doesn't mean he's going to give you whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what James is saying. That's not what scripture says. But our audacity to ask can never be exceeded by his capacity to answer. Let me say that again. Our audacity to ask can never be exceeded by his capacity to answer. And that's how Jesus taught us to pray. First four words of the Lord's Prayer. You probably know them very well. Our Father in where? Heaven. That's not just his address, right? That's his authority. Jesus is teaching us to pray with the knowledge that our Father lives above this universe. Our Father lives outside this universe. He created this universe. And he can do anything within it that is consistent with his character and his will. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, with and for whoever he wants, if he wants. And don't let anybody tell you any different. Our God is a miracle worker. And with him, all things are possible. And so church, my prayer is that we will have great faith in God. But even more than that, my prayer is that we will have faith in a great God. Amen? My God, that is who you are.